I really appreciate you all being here, especially like coming all the way to Texas A&M, San Antonio, in the rain. Um, unfortunately, Representative Gonzalez also got stuck, but his traffic was a little worse. He's stuck in DC. Um, so he gets, apparently there's something going on on the hill, I don't know, boats. Um, but he did give us uh, a welcome message, so I wanted to start with that. Welcome to the post 9-11 Town Hall Series kickoff. I apologize for not being in there in person. I'm here in Washington. I'd much rather be in the beautiful city of San Antonio, Texas. As a post 9-11 uh, veteran myself, having served 20 years in the military, retired as a Navy Master Chief, having spent five years in Iraq and Afghanistan, I'm grateful for everything that the Hoover Institution does to bring light to the veterans and figure out a way forward. Now is a trying time, not only in the United States, but throughout the world. And it's important that we all come together and we stand firm as Americans to bring us the unity that we need to be the leader of the free world. Thank you for having me. All right. And with that, I, I want to welcome everyone here um, to the kickoff of our events in what is our post 9-11 veteran town hall series. So this series is all about the identity and the legacy of a, a generation of veterans that started with September 11th. So you have a generation of military services, service that's bookended on one end uh, with the fall of the towers, and on the other end with a bit of an ignominious retreat from Afghanistan. And I think the ending to this generation maybe came with very little closure, uh, very little kind of reconciliation about what it means to have served over the last two decades. And so that's what this town hall series is supposed to do, and um, for us to have a conversation, to begin a conversation about what it meant to have served after 9-11, and then what it means for veterans as they return to their communities. And ultimately, what that 20 years of military service means to um, local communities, American democracy, uh, and the future of the military force. So we're here today specifically to tackle kind of the initial core question about this generation, and that is, who is the post 9-11 veteran? And how does the diversity of this generation affect the legacy of the generation, and a little bit of a polemic, is there enough that we all have in common to forge a, a common vision or purpose for this generation as we move forward? So for me, San Antonio is the perfect place to begin this conversation. Um, most of the people in this room know this, but for those of y'all who are not from San Antonio, uh, San Antonio is often called the veteran city, and it's home to over 160,000 veterans and 80,000 active duty members. So that means in this county, in Bear County, you're looking at 15 to 20% of the population is military or veteran. So like that means that you are always two to three Kevin Bacons from a veteran <laughs> if you live in San Antonio. And honestly, guys, that's a big deal. Because studies show that it is the kind of commonplace knowledge of veterans. It's the interaction with veterans in your neighborhood, your local coffee house, 
schools that has the highest relationship towards service. So it is knowing veterans that leads others to choose to serve. And in San Antonio, it's almost impossible not to know veterans. And you know, for me, this kind of story of, of everyday occurrences with um, veterans is, uh, that's my military service story. So I'm the daughter of two Air Force brats uh, who met at Judson High School while their parents were stationed at Randolph Air Force Base. I grew up going to the commissary and the bowling alley, and we would drive by the house where my great-grandfather lived when he was learning to fly for the Army Air Corps. That, you know, now at Randolph, my cousin, Marie, teaches pilots at the same base. So for us, like for me, San Antonio is as much a part of who I am as a military veteran, really, as 9-11. Um, so I signed my contract with the Air Force ROTC on September 10th, 2001, in New York City. I was a freshman in college. So San Antonio brought me to the military, but that day ended up defining the significance of my service. So I remember, I watched the second plane hit the tower in the lobby of my dorm room, but I could look out the window and see the smoke. And that experience, that kind of like visceral moment, I think for those of us in this room who were alive on that day, we're always gonna remember where we were, what it felt like, what it smelt like. That, that day, you have these, there's a few moments in time where you realize you're living in history. And that's what that day was for me. So I joined the Air Force 18. I had no idea what like that commitment meant. Totally different world. But I remember that day, President Bush standing on a platform, his arms were around a fireman. And in that second, I knew that the decision I had made the day before, it had a certain type of meaning. So, there was a lot of clarity in that moment. And after 9-11, about who we were as a country, our willingness to join the military, to go to combat, to volunteer, to risk our lives. But it got murky and complicated over the, the next two de decades. And I think that uncomfortableness about what we did or did not do after 9-11 um, has kind of made it socially acceptable to not talk about what 9-11 means to this generation of veterans. So, that's what we're gonna to do today. And so the panelists that we have in front of you, in case you haven't noticed, represent an extraordinary diversity of experience. And that extraordinary diversity, the differences between this panelists, that is why we're here. Because I believe that's part and parcel of this generation. And yes, I accidentally put too many Marines <laughs> I overrepresented <laughs> in an Air Force city. So I'm going to just let you all know I'm on the record. I'm going to overrepresent the Air Force uh, and hold it down for the sake of all things LeMay. All right. So I want to introduce you all to our panelists. Uh, Major General Angie Salinas retired from the Marine Corps in 2013 after 39 
years of military service. She was the first woman to command a Marine Corps recruit depot and the first Hispanic woman to become a general of the Marines. She is the CEO of the Girl Scouts of Southwest Texas. Now sitting next to her is Adrienne Perkins. Adrienne Perkins is a U.S. Army veteran, West Point graduate, who served eight years, and I think in that eight years, three tours of duty <laughs> in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and then, you know, he decided to be a slacker, got out, became like the president of your law class. Of, I don't know people Harvard. 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 Um, and then went on to become the mayor of Treeport. And Major General Juan Ayala retired from the U.S. Marines in 2015, also with deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. And he now serves as the director of the Office of Military and Veteran Affairs in this fine city of San Antonio. So he is the living embodiment of the linkage between civil and military in Veteran City, USA. Next to him is Dr. Trill Pauline, who is a staff sergeant in the Army National Guard and the CEO and founder of Freedom to Feed, a nonprofit that works to improve infant nutrition um, through innovations um, to solve infant allergies. She is a combat veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom. And finally, Lieutenant Colonel, retired, uh, Donnie Hasseltine, who retired from the Marines with two decades of service, including deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. There's a theme here. Uh, and he is now the Vice President of Security at technology firm 2F. So um, Adrian, Trill, and Donnie are a part of our Hoover Veteran Fellows Program. So it's a program that supports post 9-11 veterans who are seeking to make meaningful contributions within their local communities. Um, and for the rest of this conversation, I'm gonna be referring to everyone on this panel by their first name. And that's intentional. That's a way to emphasize the commonality of this extraordinary experience on the panel. But the titles, ranks, honorifics that each of these members hold are part of their unique identity. Um, so I'm not downplaying that just up playing how much we have in common. Okay, that was preamble, that was resume, but now I want to talk about who you all are as veterans and as civilians. So, Angie, I want to start with you because you have by far, well, you have one of the longest services I've ever gotten the honor to, to hear about. And you have the longest service in this panel. So I'm interested, what drew you to serve? And then can you describe what motivated you to join the military? So first off, let me just say thank you so much for inviting me to participate with this incredible um, panel and what you're doing at the Hoover Institute. So when I had, um, so my timeline a long time ago, long, long, long time ago, and uh, I will add that the wheel was invented back then. <laughs> But it was a different time. So I, I would tell you that the Vietnam War ended. Um, I'm living in the Bay Area, so I just want to kind of give the scenario a little bit. So I'm a sophomore in college. Um, the, I grew up with protesters on the six o'clock nose. I've seen the American flag being burnt in the name of freedom of speech. And at the same time, I've also seen a man land on the moon carrying a flag. I, 
I am really seeing our country in great turmoil. It's almost like a pre repeat, I think, of history. But at this time, Helen Reddy is singing a song that says, I am woman. And, and so this is an opportunity that women are looking for equality. And um, I want to go mail a letter. And so there's no, there's no, there's no real purpose really for me as a woman for any patriotism. The nation has just started the all-volunteer force. Um, I think nationally we felt that people were still going to, men were still going to run to the door out of sheer patriotism. And the realities were uh, they weren't. So I went to go mail a letter one day, and uh, this was when the post office and uh, recruiting services were all still in the federal buildings, and out stepped a United States Marine who, I will tell you, anybody in dress blues um, looks good. <laughs> and so this United States Marine looked at me and said, why aren't you a Marine? And I'm um, 19 years old, as you can imagine. Um, and uh, my intent is only to mail a letter, so you can imagine what a 19-year-old response was to this Marine recruiter, which was, um, please just get away from me. <laughs> but what he said following that conversation was, you have an opportunity um, to do something that nobody else really has an opportunity to do now, which is join an organization that does not want you and you will get equal pay. And you will be in an organization that does not want you, but you will gain a title. That once you earn a title, no one in your entire life will ever be able to take away from you. And so I met him on the 30th of April, and those words resonated with me because there was something about joining an organization whose motto is, we're looking for a few good men. <laughs> And so to join an organization, and then I think that just really this idea that the challenge, this idea to be part of something that very few, with a core of roughly 175,000, and to be in a group of only 2,000 women, uh, and to earn that title. Um, and I think that became the attraction. And, and really, I had nothing else to do. <laughs> and so, because I think then it just became a monetary thing. You know, like, how do I get money? How do I get a job? And think about this. It's 1974. Nowhere else in this country could a woman get the exact same pay as a male, regardless of a job. So I could come in as an E2 and get paid exactly as my male counterpart, whether he was a combat arms, whether he was an aviation tech, an admin clerk, and I got paid exactly as he did. And, um, and so I met him on the 30th of April. Uh, on the 4th of May, I do solemnly swore to support and defend the Constitution of the United States, and by the 7th of May, I was a parasite in total shock with a drill instructor screaming at me and I had a horrible case of buyer's remorse. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, I mean, buyer's remorse, but you stuck with it for like, I don't know, almost four decades. It's impressive. But I, you talk about the trajectory, I mean, the crossroads, and I think because what the, what the core did was, it was the idea that nobody, just very much what I think our parents all try to instill in us and what life is, is that no one gives you anything. The idea is that you earn every step. You, you earn every, every moment in life, and then there's this expectation that what is earned and given, you give back. 
you know, that it's a privilege, you know, for everything that has given been given and earned by someone else. And, and I think that's essentially what those of us who've worn the cloth of the nation is that it's, you know, it becomes this value, this value-based organization regardless of branch and that we become our own community in our own family and it was the values that I got because I always believed that I had my own family values but what the core instituted in me and really enhanced was these core values of the honor and the courage and the commitment and at the end of it having been a lackluster performer in academics you know I, I managed to take the two years of doing nothing but partying I managed to go back to school realizing that education was what I was now. That was my ammunition. I now had the weapon that all this time I was just doing nothing with it. I was just haphazardly shooting around with it where now I had eyes on target. And I was able to now see I needed that. I was in control of that weapon and I could do something with it. So the, the Marine Corps gave me that discipline to go back and see that that was the only way out. Wow, moving to another uh, Marine Corps uh, veteran. You're, like Angie, you started your service uh, at the beginning of the all-volunteer force in the height of the Cold War. But can you describe to us what it felt like uh, beginning your military service in the shadow of a looming nuclear war? Like, How did Vietnam affect your decision when you joined the military? Well, I grew up in El Paso, Texas. I was the oldest of nine children. Uh, first generation, uh, and I always wanted to give back. I always thought that it was important for us, uh, especially where I was living, uh, that uh, this country had given us quite a bit. Uh, my father was very proud of the fact uh, that we spoke English, first and foremost. Uh, and uh, I, I graduated from high school in 1975. Uh, Vietnam had ended, and um, I was a little disappointed, to be quite honest with you. But I wanted to be a Marine ever since I was in the fourth or fifth grade. I can't remember when, but I, I knew I wanted to be a Marine. And the reason being, my dad had a little restaurant. Uh, he, he ran it for 30 some years. And a lot of the young people that used to go in there with their dads, <clears throat> I saw them, they were, they were knuckleheads to be quite honest with you. And about 90% of them joined the Marine Corps. And I remember when they came back, uh, just the, their presence, uh, their composure, uh, they weren't even in their dress clothes, to be quite honest with you. And so that's that really further inspired me to join the Marine Corps. Um, and so, and I, I also liked the discipline. I also liked the fact that, uh, you know, we were gonna give back to our country. Uh, and that I think that was really important to, to my parents uh, at the time. And it still was until the day they died. I know my father never became an American citizen for family reasons. Uh, the day my father died, my mother went and applied to be an American citizen. So I think it's, uh, and you know, my story is real common, uh, very common story. But yeah, I, I, no regrets. Well, to finish my Marine trifecta, Donnie, you also served before 9-11, but four years. So it's kind of proportionally a much smaller um, proportion of your total service. And you're in the 90s in the Marines. The focus in the 90s Marines it's humanitarian assistance, right? And peacekeeping. Can you explain a little bit kind of what those four years were like before 9-11 for you as a Marine? Yeah, it was uh, it was really interesting because, you know, at the time, the last real combat that the United States had seen was in Somalia in Desert Storm time frame. And there was this general feeling of that we've kind of settled a lot of issues. There's peace and there was still a 
need for the military, but it was a lot of times, a lot of our training was on Operation Open War. It was non-combatant evacuation operations, humanitarian assistance, peacekeeping, and those sort of things. And um, my very first uh, assignment was a third battalion, eighth Marines. We ended up deploying on the Marine Extra Training Unit that actually went to Kosovo. So we were at a period like of non-combat. We we're the only people that saw anything that would be termed as combat. Not close to I'd say what we saw in Iraq and Afghanistan. But in '99, like that was that was the only real show in town. So being able to see kind of that up close and have this unique experience of like, okay, how do we apply peace and how do we support two warring factions and kind of step between them. But we kind of thought like that was gonna be the, the job as we'd be stepping in areas where they needed help or at area where two areas were fighting, we were to step in between and kind of separate them and settle things and let, let, let things move forward until they could achieve some degree of political uh, solution otherwise. And so as I closed out to that, um, you know, we were certainly inspired when you think back to our grandparents' generation of World War II and all, and thinking there was going to be something like that. We just didn't believe it was going to really occur. And then when you fast forward then to September 11th, I had just finished my uh, first deployment with an instructor at the basic school uh, when you're walking through one morning, and for the Marines there, there's a bar inside the Marines' basic school called the Hawk. Uh, normally, you know, first thing in the morning, Marines are not in the bar, believe it or not. Um, but that morning, we're walking out of a, of a decision game, and there's, it's packed. And uh, I remember myself and the other instructor, she and I are walking by, we're like, that's kind of odd. Uh, and then right as we kind of like passed the view, we saw the image of towers, and like, okay, things have changed. And uh, just that whole radical shift of trying to figure out what's going on, securing a base that was pretty much open, Quantico was. Uh, was a very different, so it was a very radical shift from thinking of what you were getting into and thinking of what your job was going to require to, oh yeah, we're back to what we, we, were, we were told. Yeah, so we have, we have three veterans here, a little bit me, who started their military service not because of 9-11, but stayed in after 9-11, and so this becomes like a pivotal moment. But. Trill, Adrian, you guys both decided to join after 9-11. And I, I'm interested in hearing about how 9-11 shaped your decision to join the military. Adrian, you were on track to be a D1 athlete at a regular school. No offense to the West Wing. <laughs> so then 9-11 happens, you make a very different choice. You decide to go to West Point after all these other colleges are courting you. Not only do you do that, and this actually is really impressive to me, because West Point is really, it's, a, it's tough, right? Not only did you do that, you took a year of prep school, which that's, that's a lot of commitment. So can you explain to me a little bit of kind of your decision making as you were entering the military and deciding going to West Point and how 9-11 affected those choices? No, absolutely. And um, I, I want to reiterate uh, the general's point as well on just thanking you all for being here today. I'm a, I'm a national uh, servant, but I'm also a local servant and being the mayor. And I know how important it is to have, um, you know, citizens that go out and do things and get involved in their community because we are very busy as Americans. So thank you so much for being here. Uh, but my story starts a little bit before 9-11 and growing up in a military family myself. My grandfather served in the Korean War, and I remember this very prominent photograph of him drinking a Coca-Cola with his buddy in Korea, a black and white photo at my grandmother's house that I would see every time I went over there, and it was just the coolest photograph to me. My older brother also served, he retired with 25 years in the Army, 
uh, as an enlisted as well. So I got to see my grandfather's photo. I got to see my brother serving. I would actually spend uh, summers with my brother while he was in the military. So I was at Fort Bliss for a couple summers. So I spent some time in El Paso as well. Uh, but all of that was not convincing to me to join, uh, just being honest. I was not convinced to join at all. Um, I thought it was a, a cool place to go, uh, but I had other visions on making it out of Shreveport and out of our, our circumstances. Another important part about me is I grew up in a neighborhood named Cedar Grove in Shreveport. It's the poorest neighborhood in Shreveport, uh, one of the most like high crime areas in Shreveport as well. Uh, so again, I was pretty committed to, to getting out. And track was offering that venue to me. I was uh, all, a preseason All-American going into my junior year. I was All-State athlete as well. Very committed to going to a normal school. Uh, <laughs> I thought I would go to LSU. Um, I had already had my roommates picked out. We knew what dorms we were going to try to get. I did Boys State as well, so you know, very familiar with the campus. And then 9/11 happened, and just like you, I remember it like it was yesterday. It's one of those defining moments where everything seems to slow down, and you just like are sucking in every single detail. I was sitting in my biology two classroom junior year. And I remember being in the classroom for a couple of minutes and another teacher just like bursting open the door and dashing into the classroom and whispering into my teacher's ear. My teacher's eyes got really big. She ran over, she turned on the TV and we saw the first tower like on fire and burning. And um, we like, she couldn't tell us what was going on. We never, by the, by the way, biology two, this teacher was tough. She would not turn on the TV for anything. Like we were, we we're gonna be focused on biology two concepts. So the fact that she even did that, we knew something was awry. She she couldn't explain anything to us. We were just watching uh, the tower burn, and obviously we, we saw the plane crash into the second tower. And watching the fear on my teacher's face that morning, watching the fear on my classmates' face that morning, going home, you know, we we ended school early, going home, watching the fear on my family's faces. Uh, that's what made me decide to serve because I wanted to stand in between my family and my community and the people that perpetrated those attacks. So that's what got me over the hump. And West Point was already recruiting me. I was very dismissive uh, at first during the recruiting, uh, the recruiting process, but after that morning, I actually reached back out and said, hey, I'm, I'm very, very interested. Uh, took a visit to the campus and um, I was committed. So, you know, the, the rest is history after that, but that's what pushed me over the hump. And, and like you in the, in the two decades since, um, you know, mixed feelings about our service but I was all, absolutely all in in that moment and still very, very proud of my service as well. So you were a freshman in high school when 9-11 occurred. So that means like it didn't just shape your results, it also shaped kind of like this really important period in adolescence. So can you talk a little bit about how 9-11 influenced your decision? Because you enlisted in the Guard right after you graduated, right? Right before. <laughs> That's right, you're like 17, right? Yes. Yeah, um, but first, thank you so much, Jackie, thank you to Kluber for having me, and to all of you for coming out in the rain um, to be here today. Exactly as you mentioned, Jackie, I was a freshman in high school, I was in first period algebra class, and um, very similar type of situation where someone came into our class, said something to our teacher, and then we wheeled a TV, uh, because we didn't have TVs in our classroom, unfortunately, but we wheeled, you know, the TV into the room, and then we we stayed in that classroom. We didn't move to like our next period. We stayed in that classroom and we watched the uh, second plane. We we watched all of this happen. Um, and I remember walking home that day. And at the time, I lived in North Dakota, right? And so even even in the space of thinking like 
this would not be an area of target. Um, but the conversations in the school was about the fact that North Dakota um, happens to house a lot of our military weaponry. And so maybe it would be. And so being a freshman in high school, like watching the skies as I walked home the like two blocks to my home, um, thinking like, what if? What if something happened here? And, and truly being terrified. And when I was uh, 17 years old in the last few months of um, high school, a National Guard Army recruiter came to the school. And I knew that I wanted to get an education. I knew I wanted to go to college um, very similar to Adrian. Um, I had a very rough upbringing. I'd been in and out of child services. I'd been in and out of foster care. And in my mind, an education was what was going to like project me out of that situation. And a recruiter came to the school and said, well, how are you going to pay for that? And I was like, that's a really good question. I have no idea. And um, they said, well, we can help you. We can help you pay for that. And so it was this culmination of um, this like patriotism that I felt at that time. I mean, I was 17 years old. I was a baby. Uh, so very similar of like, I really truly didn't fully understand the implications of my decisions, if I could be honest. Um, but it was this culmination of wanting to serve my country, wanting to give back, wanting to ensure that my life could be better than what it had been and to provide that for my family if I was lucky enough to have a family in the future. Um, and it seemed like the military was the space in which that could occur. So I joined at 17, went to basic at 18 years old, and now I'm serving my 18 and a half year <laughs> um, in the National Guard. two decades until you reach these. Yeah. Almost, yeah, so close. I just have to double that um, to get even even near, near that. Um, so yes. That was a big, a big piece. I want to stay on September 11th for a moment because I think that really was really pivotal. That's why we're all here. And um, so Angie, Juan, Donnie, you, you choose to stay in after 9/11, but maybe it, it changes the tenor of your service. Definitely, kind of what you're focused on. Juan, you were in like Stuttgart. 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 Sorry, Stuttgart, Germany, and you're focused at the time on humanitarian assistance and peacekeeping. Yes, I was the chief, uh, believe it or not, of the humanitarian assistance branch of the United States European Command. What an oxymoron, Marine Humanitarian. <laughs> well, that was a great, but great the 90s position. were great. That's kind of yeah, what they were doing was, in the 90s. Uh, at the time, they didn't have an AFRICOM. And so my portfolio was Africa, Eastern Europe, and we traveled uh, all over quite a bit. And what we would do is uh, we would go to the American Embassy to bring in uh, foreign leaders uh, from those countries and then we would rebuild or build orphanages, wells, schools, hospitals. And then at the very end, because we wanted access, influence, and good press for the United States, we put a big sign in front of that facility and say, donated by the people of the United States of America. My job, that was my job, uh, but also my job was every incoming uh, ambassador to any of those countries, we would brief them on our programs and how those ambassadors could use those for access, influence, you know, good press. Uh, I was sitting, uh, I was briefing the incoming ambassador to the country of Uganda. And we were in a big conference room, and you know, I was telling him, you know, these are the great programs, and blah, blah, blah. Here comes, I was a colonel at the time, or lieutenant colonel, and here comes a, a, a three-star general. Of course, I'm a lieutenant colonel, I go, oh my God. He opens the door, and he says, turn on the televisions. 
So he turns on the televisions, and we saw, as we're all watching, we saw that plane hit the, the second plane hit the tower. Uh, very sobering. Uh, I'll never forget it. Uh, there was uh, a couple of the folks in there who just, just couldn't believe it. We had one from New York City that couldn't stop crying. Uh, and, and the world completely changed after that. The tone and tenor of our command uh, completely changed. I remember vividly, uh, we lived uh, in an in a, in a area which was right in the middle of town. And it was wide open. So I could walk to the German bakery, the Turkish Falal place, whatever. Just no, no barriers. And I recall going home that day, and there was barriers, there were MPs, there was barbed wire all around the housing area. And I'll never forget that <clears throat> about a half mile into the gate on both sides of the street, there were German citizens with cards, balloons, flowers, uh, wishing the United States of America uh, luck and, and the best. But it, it completely changed. Uh, you know, finished up my tour 11 months later, I'm on a plane uh, to Kuwait. That's, that is a crazy transition. It, it was. From humanitarian assistance, you know, all tea and crumpets and cult and tie, to you're getting ready to go to war. And then we, yeah. and, and it was surreal. When we got to Kuwait, my, my fellow vets will understand this, got to Kuwait, we landed there at the, at the bases, and, you know, we started taking rocket fire. Uh, and so you really know, okay, this is real. You, you were kind of living a somewhat similar transition. You also, I think, were you teaching about humanitarian assistance? Well, you teach in the fall, so the basic school covers the whole range of things you'd expect a, a Marine officer to do, and it's focused around infantry skills. So you certainly talk about all the combat skills, but yeah, there were sections on patrolling. I taught some of the patrolling for if you were in a non-combatant or a peacekeeping situation. So we had many of these things that we were actually you know, teaching and then shifting the curriculum. Yeah, so now you have to teach a Marine. Yeah. An entirely different concept of fighting. Yeah, the the I mean the basics were still the same, but there was definitely a tenor shift in the school, and especially um, trying to get feedback from the first troops that got over there and what they're learning and what we can immediately integrate in. Because as we ramped up very very quickly, it was not a case where you're going to check your unit, and you're going to have a period of time. It's these officers going to go to the next duty station, and you're going to learn the west, and they're going to step in the units probably already. Uh, and we were also around a large group of officers who were meeting like, it's time for us to go too. And we had a very sobering uh, call from our commanding officer like, you need to stay here and teach. <laughs> Trust me, this is not going away very soon. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's hard for people now, um, after two decades of, of um, you know, counterinsurgency and counterterrorism, how much learning on the fly was occurring in a very, very short period of time. Uh, Angie, when 9-11 happened, you were the commanding officer of Marine recruiting essentially throughout the West Coast. So you are recruiting, not Trill, because yours was a guard recruiter, but you're recruiting people like Trill, people who watched the, you know, watched 9-11 happen in their high school classrooms. So first, what was that day like for you? And then how did recruiting change? after September 11th. So I was, at that particular day, I was actually in Portland uh, at my, I was cleaning officer, so I was there visiting one of my substations, um, the Portland recruiting station, and like everyone who remembers that distinct moment, I was um, preparing, uh, I was in a Marriott hotel, and I was brushing my teeth, and I was listening to 
the Today Show with Katie Couric and uh, came around because they were talking about the first tower being hit and I remember just kind of coming around to brush my teeth and I'm looking at the TV and I watched that second um, plane, the second tower hit and instinctively Marines and I suspect anybody else but instinctively I knew this is not an accident. Uh, spit the stuff out, call my Marines and say get the cars we're going and we jumped and we were stationed at the time my home base was San Diego my sergeant major, my recruiter instructor, who's a E9, uh, and we said we're, we're we, the planes, the airports were already shutting down, and we knew that that was not going to be an option. So we got rental car, and literally just drove straight back down to San Diego, which our MCRD San Diego, the base there, is located literally next door to the San Diego airport, and the eeriest sound ever was total silence. We're pulling up to the base, and it is in total lockdown. And we're in full uniform, and we're being like, you know, slapped up against the fence. And I'm like, I, I got a little green ID card, and I'm a colonel, and you know, but they're everyone is in total lockdown. They don't trust anybody, and um, and of course our families are living on the base. But that whole transition, and interesting because. The Marine Corps has always been successful in recruiting, but it, we worked hard. We had good Marines, but selling intangibles is what we refer to. But after that point, people were running because of patriotism. And as the nation realized, and I think interesting if you go back and look at statistics, crime went down. I mean, even criminals got patriotic. They're like, okay, we're not gonna rob anybody, we're gonna mug anybody, we're gonna all come together because we, as a nation, have been attacked. And, and so I think, I think everybody wanted to answer the call to the nation. And, and every time that you know, everyone was trying to get to the fight, I was always in recruiting. That seemed to be my skill set. And um, it was very hard because you know, what we call the parents and our, our, our influencers, it's very difficult because in this patriotic, you're still taking your firstborn, you're taking your most loved possession, and how do you, how do you say for the greater good, I'm willing to offer up, because that's really what you're asking, this young 17, 18 year old is going for the intangible, this sense of patriotism, this desire to want to serve, but yet the parent, you know, the mom and dad who knows that you're saying, I'm gonna go into, I'm sending my youngest, my oldest into harm's way, my own, you know, my own child, both men and women, which is, if you think about this, after Iraq, you know, women now are coming in droves, unlike in any other time in history. So I wanna, there's, there's a little piece that, that you mentioned, Donnie, and Juan, Angie, I wanna pull on it a little bit. Because it, it's really important to my memory of this as well. Um, for those of you who have served, did you know that there's a force protection condition normal? Mm -hmm. And in that condition, you can go on and off the base as long as you have an American driver's license. You may not know this because we haven't been in FPCon normal <laughs> since September 11th, 2001. And so the bases that you were on were essentially open to the communities that you were in. I mean, I was, like as a kid, I'd go on Randolph Air Force Base and go home. Like, it was part of the community. 
Moi, you told me a story that I would like people to hear. So you were in Germany, and and the community did something special for you guys on that day. Well, they were very supportive, and uh, like I mentioned, uh, they were. This was very heartwarming. They they lined up in the streets, and uh, they were sending us messages on, on, in English on cardboard, you know, pieces of cardboard. But they were throwing flowers as our vehicles were coming in. They were lighting candles as they were going in. Uh, a lot of them had tears in their eyes. And these are Germans. These are not uh, American service members or family members. Uh, after that, I recall that these, the, the, the German community really came together around us, offered us. I mean, we had knocks on the door, and we lived in a place called, uh, I can't remember the barracks. But um, it, it was incredible, the support. That, on the patch barracks. On the other hand, yeah. on the other hand, uh, we also had uh, some protesters uh, that were for the 9/11 bombers in downtown Stuttgart, and so yeah, we kind of got to see both of it, and you're seeing that now. But yeah, that was we'll never forget that uh, at the headquarters too. We had uh, it was all all European nationalities and European command, and I remember the uh, condolences and heartwarming. Things that, that all our allies that were stationed with us, so, you know, came up to us and did all kinds of things. Uh, the Germans, obviously, the Brits that were there, the French. Uh, yeah, we, we drank a lot of beer and a lot of wine. It was great. <laughs> well, I, I think one of the themes here for those of us on the panel, but probably those of us in the room, is that 9/11 radically changed our personal lives, but it also changed the moments <coughs> that the U.S. military was fighting from. Kind of wars uh, or humanitarian assistance, peacekeeping, air power. We had a moment. We had a moment in the 90s, the air power. And um, kind of war from afar. In the post 9 11 military, they were fighting wars of counterinsurgency, counterterrorism. These were intimate wars. So these are wars in which American military members are fighting on the ground, they're mortared at their bases, they're attacking the convoys. They're attacked when they're doing local outreach. And there's 20 years of these types of wars. First in Afghanistan, then in Iraq, but also, and I, honestly, I don't have the right list. There was Syria, there was Libya, there were, there were parts of Africa. There was an extraordinary amount of conflict that veterans in this time period saw. But at the same time that we're fighting these very intimate ground wars, the US is still doing its kind of big deterrence job with China. North Korea, even Iran, Russia. And so this means that even as US forces are fighting the Taliban and Iraqi insurgents, you have a whole different cadre of military professionals that are patrolling the oceans, participating in exercises, like forward deployed, but they're forward deployed to South Korea and Japan. And so in the, like at, at the same time, you have a group of people who are stateside and they're doing 24-7 operations with remotely controlled um, or remotely piloted vehicles. You have uh, people who are still in silos in Minot, North Dakota, who are assuring nuclear deterrence. So you have this extraordinary group of missions that the US military is conducting over this 20-year um, time period. And I think that can actually, that that is, uh, it's, it's a testament to the professionalism of the all-volunteer force and the capability of the U.S. military, but it kind of makes this post-9-11 veteran generation a little bit hard 
to identify and to create commonality. So I want to discuss this directly. Um, and I want to discuss directly kind of how important combat service is to the post 9-11 veteran identity. So this, this is something that comes up a lot for me when I discuss my own veteran service. And I, I actually feel like it's a bit of an asterisk that I carry with me. So I served six years in the Air Force, all in Asia. I had one deployment. I was actually supposed to go to Iraq. And a month before, we got told, no, you're going to Suwon, South Korea. So for me, every time I introduce myself as a veteran, I always tell everyone I'm not a combat veteran. And it comes almost instantaneously, one right after the other. I'm also still extremely proud of my service. So, Angie, I wonder how much you you feel this asterisk like I do. And I, honestly, for me, looking at you, you have this like kind of historic resume. I mean, you are like a glass-breaking woman. But you you still didn't get to serve in Iraq or Afghanistan because. You were so senior, so good at your job. So I wonder kind of how do you think of the value of your non-combat um, duties after 9-11? Is that individually, personally? It's hard for me as I struggle. And so I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts. Well, you know, that's, I, I think sometimes it's the toughest um, critic is when I look in the mirror. And there are a few, I think occasionally there'll be someone that's not within the community. You know, I don't think veterans themselves often uh, question it. Um, I think sometimes it's a civilian who's never worn the uniform. That's the first question is, oh, did you go to combat? Because they tend to be the one that wants to judge um, that arena. Um, I, when I was the commanding general at MCRD San Diego, I probably had at one point maybe 98% of my brains between the recruiters and my drill instructors who had served in combat. And when you're in uniform, you can tell right away because we wear our resumes on our chest. You know, the ribbons immediately tell you if you're a wounded, purple heart, and then oh, the service campaign. So you could look at me right away and people go, and so when I would talk to my drill instructors after a graduation, I would always start off with, I know I never served, however, you are America's best and brightest. And finally, one of my senior enlisted Marines pulled me aside and said, the United States Marine Corps chose you to be here. You are the most qualified and the best qualified. You are our commanding general. We don't go, we don't care. They just as easily would have chosen, you know, anyone else, but you are the one that's here. And so uh, that's your resume as far as we're concerned. And so I stopped worrying about it after that point because then I became the person who assigned people to go because it's not like I never was jumping up and down on the trampoline saying, pick me, pick me. I just was the one where every time I said, please let me go, I was more valuable in the eyes of the people making the decisions. This is your skill set and you're so good at it. This, you know, because again, as I said, when I tried to go, this was what I was really good at. And the institution saw that that was what I was. But when I became, you know, my manpower, then I made sure that there were other women who got the chance to go and be in key positions. So they were the first woman to come in in theater, for example. So I, I, that was my contribution, I guess, for ensuring that, that the roles were 
somebody else got to wear the badge. Now, Juan, you served 36 years. So 14 years of those are after 9-11. So kind of on paper, most of your military service is before 9-11. But after 9-11, you uh, were in the initial ground invasion of Iraq in 2003. And then you did another three combat tours, including one as an advisor to Iraqis. And then is your last combat tour was Fallujah. That was the year. When I was an advisor, we had Ramadi we had the triangle, Ramadi, Fallujah, Nasser, Wasalam, so, parts of Baghdad. <clears throat> So how important are those 14 years to how you think back on defining your military service? Well, uh, I mean, those 14 years, every single assignment prepared me to go to combat. Every single one of them. And I think that, uh, as Andy was saying and others will say, that you know we continually train uh, to do that. And I think that uh, you know I'm very proud of the fact that as a colonel is I got to do it. Uh, and I got to do it again and again, and I, and I, I was jumping on a trampoline as a volunteer, though. Uh, <laughs> uh, but those 14 years were very formative, and uh, uh, you know we did all kinds of things in those 14 years that really got me pre prepared, not only for my occupational specialty, but leadership, maturity, and then uh, leading Marines. It, that's a, it's an art to lead Marines, and I'll tell you, it, it, when we saw the Marines in combat, it was an incredible uh, validation of how well we train Marines starting at boot camp and how well we train them in our units. Uh, our, our country is in great hands. And I really think that those young Marines, I wish all of us could, all of you could see them that were not in the military. These are 18, 19 year olds uh, that are just incredible. And I think those 14 years, I knew that all along. That was a great validation when I went into uh, it, it went into theater. Well, I, I, I promised that I wouldn't overemphasize the Marines, so Adrian, <laughs> for the Army, how was your experience different um, or similar to the Marine experience? I mean, you eight years, three combat tours, and a lot of the same places. Do you think it was a similar type of experience? Kind of how how was that uh, military and um, that combat experience for you? Yeah, well, far more junior, right? I, I deployed as a as a first lieutenant was my first deployment, so uh, far more junior than, than my, my counterparts on the stage would be. But you know, I, I'll say you know I want to reiterate a point. The only time or that I hear about anybody kind of stratifying a combat veteran versus a non-combat veteran is somebody on the outside looking in. Uh, and they look at, you know, it's an organization they don't know much about, so it's caricatures that they, look, you know, they look at veterans as caricatures. Um, but internally, I never hear a veteran talk about, oh, you know, they might ask a question, but there's no judgment there, because we understand we're a part of the team. And that was my backdrop. I was a, on the track team, and I played football, and I played basketball. I was an athlete, and I knew how important the team was. Uh, you know, I was, I'm, I'm short, I can't dunk a basketball, but I knew how important my center was, right? Uh, and we wouldn't win games if we didn't play together and we didn't bring our best selves in, onto the court. So I never did that. And another component that made me never stratify is my brother already had 14 years of service in when I entered and he didn't get his first deployment until six months before I deployed for the first time. And that was his only deployment. So my brother having served 24 years, I still deploy more than him, and it's no way that I can say, oh, I contributed more, I, my contribution was special, because 
you know, I, I deployed three times. I, I very much put myself in those positions to, to be able to deploy too, and being honest. I knew which units were deploying. I was looking at the patch chart, and I went into the military very much wanting to be combat arms and wanting to be on the front lines. Um, but even with that, it's still a probability. Anybody that knows anything about the Army and the Green Machine, you do not control your destiny. <laughs> you know, I ask people stationed in Fort Polk. Um, <laughs> I'm from Louisiana, I can say that. So, so, so no, it was, it was, I never, you know, I never viewed that, but I, I will say the only times that I have heard, uh, you know, green suitors use the, you know, say, hey, I'm, I'm deployed, is when they are taught, it's very in-house thing, and I'm exposing some, some in-house laundry right now, but um, some of our senior NCOs, only when trying to get our junior soldiers to focus in training, knowing that we were about to face a deployment. That's the only time that they would, go down that resume and you know point to a patch or something like that, only to get them to focus and understand the severity of the situation that we were in. So it was a means to an end. It was never an end to make themselves feel bigger or better than anybody else. So um, yeah, you know, we, we are all a part of the same team and we're part of a very small percentage of Americans that raise their hand to defend the Constitution and you know everybody should be crazy with it. Well, speaking of team, and um, truly you were and still are a part of the National Guard. This is the total force. For those of y'all who don't know, total force is the active duty, is kind of what we generally think about, but it includes the reserves as well as the National Guard. So the post-9-11 conflicts are really unique for the total force because this becomes the first time that you have members of the National Guard and the reserve that are deploying sometimes at the, the same intervals as their active duty reference. So, um, they actually become direct substitutes for the active duty. But despite the fact that many of the guards deploy, just like the active duty, guard and to some extent reserve uh, actually don't receive the same benefits as the active duty. Um, and I, I think you also, it's not quite the same public credit. Um, we talked a little bit about how you sometimes wonder like, there, there, this benefits for the military, is that, for me, I'm a guard member, but you did deploy to Iraq. And not only did you deploy to Iraq, you volunteered to go into the local communities. You were essentially on the front lines at a time where many in the public, and I, even the military, didn't think women were in combat. So can you talk a little bit about why you deployed and what you did in Iraq, and if you're comfortable, can you talk about some of the kind of trauma and experiences that you had downrange? Absolutely, and um, to Jackie, to your point as well, I think that something that I see commonly in the military is um, a, a humbleness about our, our service and um, always knowing that there are others within our ranks who have um, deployed more, given more, um, not come back. And so I think that there's, even for those of us who have several, several deployments, there's a little bit of that, that feel, right, of like, um, but I didn't X, Y, or Z. And so I don't think that that's, that's an uncommon experience. Um, in the Guard, this is not only um, part of my experience, but also uh, part of many of our realities as a Guard member. Um, so I joined the National Guard. I've always been National Guard um, with a deployment in 2007 to 2008 um, to Baghdad. 
And at the time, I was 19 years old. I had a year of undergraduate under my belt, and I was voluntold with a unit that I'd never met before. And so I got yoinked from the unit that I was currently in as a logistics individual, so basically like part of a unit that was doing um, mechanics, if you will, and I was pulled and went with a completely different unit where I knew no one. Um, and I was put as a radio operator. And I had never ran a radio. And so I get to this new unit, I'm gonna learn what a radio is, and um, let's go to, let's go to Iraq. Um, so in that, um, what's fascinating about my service is that while I was there, we, our unit, and this happens a lot in the Guard, is that we created what was called a task force where instead of it being like all of the people that you know and that you've trained with this entire time, instead we literally took five different states with us to Baghdad. We were like, cool, North Dakota is the headquarters. Iowa, you are our quick reaction force. Uh, Illinois, you're going to be our uh, infantry guys. And we literally took five different states of, we, and we didn't know each other at all. And we deployed together. So there were just about 700 of us in this task force, and of that, 28 were female. And only came from the North Dakota National Guard. The rest of the units were all male units. And it was fascinating and, quite frankly, awful, um, <laughs> in that during the time that we were there, because they were all male units, um, and we were doing local um, patrols and, um, looking for weapons caches, looking for um, persons of interest. We were oftentimes in people's homes in Baghdad and that created a huge cultural problem because our all male units um, from Iowa were interacting with the female local nationals and um, that caused a lot of cultural rift. And so what ended up happening is the unit called out to these 28 women who were part of this task force and said, will you volunteer to go out with these all-male patrols to be that, that cultural buffer, if you will? And I was all of 19 years old and single and mostly dumb, and I was like, yes, me. I was jumping up and down on the, that trampoline as well as we do. And so I volunteered to be one of those individuals, and so I went from like, my job is, uh, I'm a full-time college student, and sometimes on the weekends I do logistics in a maintenance bay to I'm running a radio, I am doing you know pat-downs of local female nationals and I'm in all-male patrols on a regular basis. And what was, I think some of the, the big moments for me during that time was not only obviously these jobs that I had literally zero training in, um, until you were on the job training, for sure. Um, in addition to that, I had extended. I stayed longer, because in the Guard, um, if you don't deploy for a certain number of months, you don't get all of the benefits. And so I had to extend for two more months with the next unit that I had never met, who was from Arkansas, um, in order to get all of the benefits as a Guard member so I could get all of the college benefits, basically. So I extended and ended up working and running the um, entry control point 
with the local nationals coming in who were working, which was um, equally as uh, hard of a job. And while we were in Baghdad, some of the, the main threads um, was that we were regularly mortared, um, sometimes on a daily basis, sometimes you know, bi-weekly, it was always a surprise. As one of the individuals running um, the radios, it was my job to go and do 100% accountability to make sure we had all bodies. Um, everyone was accounted for, and so sometimes that was on a daily basis that we would have to do that because we were being um, attacked on a regular because we were right nestled up next to Baghdad. Um, we also, in our patrols, I experienced in some of our um, humanitarian missions where we were delivering things like shoes to some of the local nationals. Um, there was an incident in which uh, my very small stature human of um, what I'm working with, all like 120 pounds of me at 19, dripping wet, um, I was trampled while we were doing a, uh, a shoe drop for some locals. Um, and that, in addition to some of the other experiences I had overseas, um, I came back home and experienced a few things. One, um, the struggle of like coming back and still being in, but only doing weekend drills, um, not wanting to be kicked out because a lot of my fellow soldiers that I saw who reported things like um, what we experienced were then kicked out of the guard. Um, there was there was a lot. It was. Um, it was a hard time to then just jump right immediately. You come home and you immediately jump back into your civilian life and to come back and be like, all right, I'm gonna go to, you know, um, anatomy and physiology class with these 19 year olds who were gossiping about like who kissed Sam last night at the party. And like, there's this huge disconnect now. Um, and then you just do that over and over again every month where you, you re, you put on your combat boots and then you take them back on. And you put them on, you take them off. The struggle that I have today is um, the acceptance and um, the working through the, that trauma while still serving, I'm still serving. Um, and two, the fact that even with all of that, and at the end of this, I will have served at least 20 years um, in the National Guard, in the military, yet the benefits that are waiting for me are nowhere near the benefits for somebody who maybe did eight years active duty. Um, it, it looks completely different, or 20 years and, and retired. Um, and there are a lot of moments in which the question of like, yo, yeah, that's a benefit for the military, but I have to look up, do I actually get it? And even as a combat veteran, oftentimes the answer to that is no. So I, I want to come back a little bit to your experience because I want to transition a little bit to kind of who we are now as civilians. And uh, on the paper, I sh you should have the easiest answer because you lived your entire life balancing this, um, I'm a Guards member, uh, nope, I'm deployed, nope, now I'm a civilian. But I think it's really difficult to navigate. And on one hand, you are a staff sergeant who uh, has done everything from logistics to surveying design to ECP, but in your professional civilian life, you're you're a 
a PhD in like microbiology. You're like creating technology that solves infant malnutrition. I mean, like you're pretty impressive. But how do you think of yourself? Like when people will ask you like who you are, are you a veteran? Are you a staff sergeant military member? Are you a civilian? Like how do you navigate like living three different identities? complicated. Um, I think that a few pieces. So um, because I, I kind of like grew into both of my careers and they took two very different trajectories. Um, and so now they've like deviated so far from each other that it's kind of fascinating to look at. Um, but it's also in spite of themselves. <laughs> Uh, meaning that what I found throughout this is that I've had to decide which one gets my attention because I cannot effectively do both at the same time, which has led to where I am now. I have a PhD in, in cellular molecular biology. I have invented a test system to help infants who are navigating food reactivity. Um, I'm the CEO of a biotech company. And at the same time, then on that weekend, I put on my combat boots and my patrol cap, and I'm a survey design engineer. I'm an E6. Yeah, I'm, I'm the enlisted uh, folk up in the up in the panel, and <laughs> yeah. um, and so I back to your question about like how to effectively navigate that. Um, I'm still figuring it out. I think yeah. <laughs> uh, half the time it's. It's hard to express to either sides of my life what the other means and to ensure that like they understand and or can, um, that it doesn't become a detriment to me. Um, to one for, it feels like in many places they both become a detriment to each other um, because of the misunderstanding of personnel mostly, right? So whether it's an, um, a professor who just does not understand when I say like, no, I can't be here for Friday because I'm being called up for hurricane duty and there's nothing that I can do about it. Um, or on the other side, when I have to talk to my commander and be like, no, I'm not coming to October drill because I'm going to San Antonio and it's going to be amazing and uh, you're going to want to share about it in the unit newsletter, right? Heck yeah, you are. Yes, yes. Um, and so having those two things coexist is, is difficult. And when I think about my identity, I think um, the main piece of my identity is continued service. And that's where like those two, that deviation like comes back full circle, is that my um, civilian career as a scientist and what I'm doing on the civilian side is very similar to my continued service to the country in that both of them are continued service to others. Um, and that is what I think will continue to be the commonality um, in these like split personalities that I have going on um, and, and something that I'm proud of. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the being the guard reserve is a really difficult identity. Um, in some ways, Donnie, you should not have an identity problem, right? Like when I look at your resume, I say, okay, uh, this is like what I would envision as a typical trajectory. You served a little over two decades in active duty 
then you transition to a civilian world where you are a successful tech entrepreneur leader in the Bay Area. I mean, you're like, you, you've got that sweet military retirement, you've got TRICARE for life, and you're like killing it in the Bay Area. Like, veteran transition success story, like check. But can you talk a little bit about like how you found value in your civilian yeah. life? And I would say that, uh, yeah, on paper, the transition looked super smooth. And I, I talk to veterans all the time, we talk about that, and they're like, well, you know, how did, how did all this work? I'm like, you just need to understand that looking back, I can tell you like the 18 steps and doors I walked through to get where I'm at now. But you gotta understand that step six, I had no idea where step seven was, and I was terrified. And so, you know, just because you made it on the other side doesn't mean like it was always smooth. And that's the thing I always tell folks, you've got to figure out where that path is. And like you said, where do you find value? Um, and in my first role, uh, which was in cybersecurity, but we were also really focused on, it was a small PE firm that was turning around um, struggling businesses or businesses that really wanted to re reorganize for growth. But at the end, when you're dealing with a private equity firm and small software companies, they're all focused on delivering product and making a profit, right? And that's, I don't begrudge anyone for that, right? But it's not coming from 20 years in the Marine Corps where mission and service and, uh, and taking care of your people, um, it didn't exactly translate, right? Um, and so I found myself looking for other ways that I, I could contribute because I was being very successful, but I wasn't getting that thing that I felt I needed. Um, and some of that dealt with working with nonprofits, um, you know, with Marine Reconnaissance Foundation, with uh, the FBI's InfraGuard, uh, with Scouts. Uh, some of it also dealt with kind of repurposing how you thought about your job. So like in cybersecurity, even though it was a for-profit firm, private sector and all, I was focused on like the things I do are keeping my team and our customers safe. The things I'm selling are making my customers' lives uh, better, and here's how I'm doing that. So you do have to think deeply about that because you might get a great job offer, you might have a great thing, you might be a successful paper. That doesn't mean you're not struggling with that value that you take for granted sometimes. So um, it's not just finding that next step, it's finding the next step where you can take care of your family, you can be successful, but you can also be fulfilled. And getting that together sometimes requires, it's not all going to be one place. Yeah, I think in, when we talked before the panel, that was one of the commonalities that really struck me uh, about each and every one of you. The word value came up in every single one of our discussions. It was a key motivator by, behind why you are at this Girl Scouts of um, a nonprofit, right? Where you could be you know, working at a Fortune 500 company, right? Adrian, it's why you made a crazy decision to run for mayor. You know, while you're in law school, one, it's it's why you are in this extraordinary position to serve our military communities within San Antonio. That is something that has really struck me, and I think that it's not just about the panelists that are up here. I actually think that it's what 9/11 veterans have in common. We have an extraordinary desire and inner motivation to serve. And so this is what I'll argue is the actual legacy of our generation. It's not necessarily kind of what happened in Iraq or Afghanistan. There's only so much control that we all have over that. But it's in how we return to our communities. It's how we lead the Girl Scouts. 
and our military communities inside San Antonio and feed infants and fight fires and lead the city of Shreveport. And I think that that is something that all 9-11 veterans can share. Now, I want to end with a, um, we have time for just a few of the, the great questions that came in. Um, one of, you know, one of the questions that we received was about the future of the all-volunteer force, and especially in a time when the services, besides the Marines, are having <coughs> trouble meeting their recruiting goals. So, Angie, I want to turn to you, because you have an extraordinary amount of experience in recruiting. So, do you think recruiting has changed since our withdrawal from Afghanistan? And then, I think this is an important debate, is it benefits or beliefs? that is more important to this new generation when they're deciding whether or not to serve? So really good question because I think, uh, so it's really a challenge. So COVID, I think, really made a huge um, dent, I think, in our ability because the market has always been our high school graduates. That's what all the services have used that uh, because we like the idea of a high school graduate, an educated, military has, has been the best bet since the all-volunteer force. Our young people want to stand next to somebody that's as smart and as motivated as um, the person to their other side and themselves as well. The benefits have always been, and I think throughout the all-volunteer force, has been education. Mm -hmm. I mean, that has always been the incentive. You've heard us all talk about how that helped us get where we needed to be. It paid for us to go to college. We got a free education by going to West Point. That motivated us and it has allowed us to be where we've arrived in a better way. Today, if you go to Starbucks, you can get your college degree. You will pay for your go to school. If you go to Chick-fil-A, um, essentially medical benefits now are being provided again medical, you know, so now um, there divide, I think, between why someone would serve because we call them their tangibles. Uh, the Marine Corps, we have these things called benefit tags. That's how we would have a conversation with somebody. I would put down technical skills. I would put down physical fitness. So you could pick three things and then we'd have intangibles, a sense of belonging, that pride of so I could then sit down and say, what's important to you? And I would pick out technical skills. I want to travel. Then I also want to have a sense of belonging. And then I would describe why those things are important to me. And that's how I would be able to focus how the Marine Corps could provide that for you. Well, today, then I'd have to go home and talk to what we call influencer to say to mom and dad or big brother, grandma and grandpa, to say why those things are important to this person, this young person wanting to serve. So that everybody, because it's a family decision, the realities are today, we're so divided that those are harder conversations to have because the technical skill now is competition for everyone. Education now can be provided by anyone. And, and so now, why? Why? What sacrifice should I make to stay away from my family? Why would I want to have low pay? Why would I want to have these the opportunity to go into harm's way. And and so this is really a serious conversation because it's the this divide and when we talk about the intangibles, the commonness when we talk about a legacy of what we all have in common is we have each other's back. Like you just meet somebody regardless of service branch, 
you just I served. I got you back. It's just it's a kind of nod, it's a handshake, you know, and we know it's whether whatever businesses we're in, if we're serving on a committee together, we got it. Yeah, my word, I got it. It's gonna be done. That's not necessarily in another environment. Like I had to double check somebody else. And and I think that's the divide. So when people are trying to figure out whether we're gonna work for, you're gonna hire me. People tend to want to be afraid because when you say I've served, they're kind of like a little, a little tilt of the head. You know, we have the tilt of the head, but it's a tilt of trust. Everyone else has a tilt of a distrust. Well, that, that actually perfectly cues up one of the other kind of themes that came up in the questions from the audience, and that was about civil-military relationships. So, you know, some of the questions are about kind of what is the community and the civilian world owe veterans? the kind of less, but like kind of how, what do veterans need to transition into those civilian communities? So I think like in the military, I'll frame this differently. We have like supported versus supporting. And I think maybe too often we think about the civil military divide. It's like, how is the kind of civilian world supporting um, the, the veteran world and where it's actually a much more complicated relationship and you live this relationship once. So, I was wondering if you could take a stab at kind of how do you think local communities should do better to support veterans or, or what they're doing well, and then how can, I'll switch it to support and supporting, how can veterans um, and military members support their local communities? Well, it works both ways. I mean, it's the military installations are not islands. You know, and just take Joint Base San Antonio here uh, in this community, you know, uh, utilities, roads. Uh, 80 to 85 percent of all our active duty and civilians work uh, on the bases, live off base. So they live in our communities. And so I think it is incumbent upon us in the community to do all we can to support them. Now I agree that veterans understand veterans. And veterans, uh, you know, we tend to be, you know, insular. We tend to hang around with each other. So I think communities uh, can do a great job, but the communities don't, I want to, Want to have to do it. I mean, I, I mean, I sit in the city of San Antonio, and there's some, you know, and I won't say who, but there's some members of city council uh, that are more aggressively supporting uh, the veteran communities, and some that are not. Uh, I think it's incumbent upon us, and I think communities take uh, their military, their military for granted. Uh, a great example is during the COVID uh, pandemic here. You know, a lot of businesses uh, went under. A lot of furloughs, a lot of people were laid off. <clears throat> Military got paid. Every veteran or every retiree got paid. Uh, military construction projects continued. And so I think, and that, that's not just economic. I mean, there's a lot of other things that are tangible and intangible, and I think the community needs to do more of an outreach. I think we do pretty good, pretty well here in San Antonio. But on the other hand, uh, having been an installations commander, I think that commanders, military commanders, are very reluctant to reach out to the community for a lot of reasons. I mean, I, we have a hard time getting some, 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 I won't say with services, getting them to City Hall to do a cake cutting ceremony. They gotta, they gotta go through their 50 lawyers. So, there you go. But you're a lawyer that comes to a yes. I feel like this is directed. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but anyway, I, I think, it, it, I, think it, I really do think it works uh, both ways. And I think there's a, an outreach that we have to do. And I, I think this community does it very well. 
When I was the installations commander, I had all 24 bases in the Marine Corps, believe me. Some did it really well because both the military and the civilian community wanted to exchange ideas, wanted to interject, wanted to uh, speak with each other, and I saw some that, oh, they're behind the fence line. Nope, I'm there to do it. Our mayor said something uh, during the COVID response uh, that I'll never forget. He said, COVID has no fence line. And if 85% of those folks that are working on base live off base, guess what? We have to talk to each other. And we did. Uh, so I think it's important that this, this has to work both ways. Unfortunately, there's a lot of hard heads on both sides. They don't want to deal with the military. And that, that fence line is, you know, it's a fence line. Uh, but that, I, I think it, it, it really does work both ways. Yeah, I think um, realizing how much we have in common versus how, what differences. The, an old volunteer army that forgets about where it came from in the citizenry is a mercenary army. We need to make sure that our veterans, our active duty, our guard, our reservists, remember that they are part of the citizenry and they will return to the citizenry after their service. And so that relationship between civilian and military is not about defense lines. It's actually about kind of who we are as Americans. Well, uh, one more thing. I've, the military, and I say this to everybody, is a reflection of our society. It really is. It really is probably more of a diverse reflection of our society. If you look at our military units, in the Marine Corps, I, I remember it was, I was amazed. I was in a battalion of 1,100 people, and uh, there was 50 languages spoken in that, in that one battalion. And it was an artillery battalion. It wasn't even an intel battalion. So, uh, uh, you know, you really uh, just, you really have to look at the military. Uh, so, so I want to conclude with something that I didn't warn you guys about, because it's kind of fun. As a moderator, um, we're going to do a lightning round. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw some questions out to you. Some of them are stupid and silly. Some of them are like the type of questions you might want to write a dissertation on. And all of you can answer, you got like five seconds apiece, right? Like short answers. So first, this is important for us in Texas. Okay, there's three Marines on there. I know, I know, so I didn't ask best like service. Around, I actually crossed awesome. out best service because I was like, oh no, the Marines are going to win that one. <laughs> okay, breakfast tacos or breakfast burritos? Taco. Burrito. I'm a taco. Burrito. Burrito. <laughs> Alright. Best place to be stationed. One. The one you're stationed at then. <laughs> at home. I'm biased. I'm, I'm National Guard, so where I get to win my own bed in my own bed. <laughs> Camp Pendleton, California. Oh. I'm my, my personal favorite when I served was at Northern Japan. Fort Campbell, Kentucky, home of the 101st Airport. MCRD San Diego will remake Marines. <laughs> All right, uh, those are easy questions. Should we reinstate the draft? Do you drink over? Yes. Okay. Andy? No. Juan? Yes. Yes. Not military, but public service. Public service, yes. I agree with public service. All right. Topo Chico or San Pellegrino? <laughs> what are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> this is an inside San Antonio show. Uh, oh, well, I am outside yeah. and um, I choose all of the above. <laughs>
Topo Chico here, for sure. Topo Chico here. H-E-B. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, for real, though, Okay, all right. Uh, LeMay or Pat? Chuck. What? LeMay or Pat? Oh boy, Patton. I got Patton. Just a puller. <laughs> I'm a West Pointer. I gotta go with Patton. Brooke Kruger. <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, what is one thing you want civilians to know about serving in the military? Why? It's a hell of a lot of fun. So. That I've gotten to do some cool ass shit. <laughs> you really do do uh, have some amazing experiences and meet the best people in the Worthwhile. America's best and brightest. All right. One last question. Might be the most important. Favorite basketball team? And I'll get up. It's basically Spurs or something. Spurs. Um, uh, this is no, tough for me. I, um, no, I can't say the Spurs. I grew up a Chicago Bulls fan, and I'm in Chicago, and so are Bulls. All right. You take Texas Western, El Paso, Texas, Harvard on the border. <laughs> I'm not batting well in uh, this lightning round, because uh, I'm a football fan, so the Green Bay Packers. Oh, we have to here, but I've got to back up my father-in-law's team. Well, I just want to say, on behalf of the Spurs, that um, <laughs> the, the Spurs are a wonderful representation of that balance of civilian and military. You get David Robinson, Naval Academy grad, Greg Popovich, probably the most famous veteran that lives in San Antonio. Air Force grad. Air Force Academy grad. I should have had him on the panel. I would have even things out a little. Um, but I want to thank all of you. Um, this is the beginning of a conversation. It's an important conversation. Um, there, this will be online, but we will also have other ones. Our next stop is Philadelphia. Then we go to Green Bay. So we can Jack. We don't go to Green Bay next. Then we go back to our home in the Bay Area, off to Green Bay, then Denver, then, D then Massachusetts, then DC. I gotta get this straight. Then DC, then New York. Most importantly, those nice little um, bookmarks have our schedule. So please um, continue to follow this series because we have some really extraordinary veterans in the lineup. Um, I want to thank the World Affairs Council. I want to thank Texas A&M San Antonio. I want to thank um, my Hoover team. And I want to thank all of you panelists um, for taking time out of your really, really busy schedules. So. Thank you all for being here in the rain. Um, and please enjoy um, the, the refreshments that we have. Thank you all.